0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
1: Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, delegates, and everyone else in between, to episode 7 of the Delegation Game. First of all, an apology. Well, oh, this seems familiar, doesn't it? But yes, I need to apologise for the fact that it's been a crazy month, and an insane last two weeks in particular, so I'm really sorry for having another break so soon after the last one. On the bright side, though, this means we'll be running all the way to the end of May with no breaks, I believe, so that's a good bit of news. Perhaps we'll be able to build up some momentum along the way, and those that seem to have withdrawn from the chats and schemes somewhat will be welcomed back with open arms. Those that continue to light up the discussions, you know who you are, and you've been very busy indeed over the last fortnight. Here, as we would have done on our regular Versailles anniversary project, we welcome back Woodrow Wilson, only this time he's accompanied by an interesting set of guests, and what's more... He returns to Paris, only to get down to some grim business. The funeral of one of the Big Three, who had since been killed. That's right, you crazy delegates voted to off poor Clemenceau, rather than allow him to recover as per the actual history. I have to say, I was quite surprised about this, but it does make for some interesting times. We'll talk about Clemenceau's replacement in this episode, and also how it affects the procedures of the Big Three. We're also required to get rid of a few delegates who stopped paying their visa fees, so you can look forward to that as well. Some strange diplomacy on the Polish side has been undertaken, which we'll have to get into too. We also saw several proposals fail to pass the voting stage. A disappointing outcome for those that were just trying to be as moist as possible. There you go, I said moist. Moist, moist moist, moisty moist moist. For those that don't get what I was just doing there, let's just say it's an inside delegate joke and move on. Please welcome to Paris a new delegate as well, Mr. Dmitri Robotnik, a full-bearded, rather large Russian who was not much of a fan of the Americans, but especially loathed of the Bolsheviks. He'll provide a good plug in the Russian dam because, unfortunately, Mr. Kerensky seems to have been otherwise indisposed. We'll have an awful lot to get through here today. We also have a new thing to vote on at the end, so stick around for that if you want to find out what that is. There's actually two delegates that have joined us, but only Robotnik has actually given us his details. The other delegates' details are actually missing, so you know who you are, dear delegate. Please do get in touch with me and let me know who you want to be and who you want to play as. If you'd prefer that I just make someone up, then that's fine too. But either way, let me know so that you can actually get the most of what you're doing here. Without any further ado, I'm going to take you on to the 14th of March, 1919, in our very alternative world. Mm -hmm. Edward House was understandably nervous at the reception he would receive. The President had seemed somewhat off with him the previous day, and when he met him off the boat at Brest, Wilson was not alone. Accompanied instead by the American delegates who had journeyed to the United States to help Wilson complete his last leg of the League of Nations tour, Wilson appeared in good spirits, but his face also told of the strain. "'Your dinner,' Wilson said to House, "'has been an unqualified success.' where getting everyone together is concerned. It was a huge relief. The PR campaigns and efforts to rally both parties to support the league had apparently succeeded. Yet neither House nor Wilson were in any doubts as to why such success had been enjoyed. Teddy Roosevelt had carried the day, the morning, the night, the afternoon, the whole meeting. Every meeting, the former president was like a man possessed, and he whipped his entourage into supporting every gesture and exclamation that he made. It seemed Teddy had a new lease on life and was even somewhat cold towards Henry Cabot Lodge, his old friend, who seemed hell-bent on rejecting the League regardless of its contents. In his efforts to secure a round-robin of Senators who opposed the League, Lodge found that with Roosevelt's voice backing the President, only a handful of Senators were willing to sign their names. The mood was thus bittersweet. Reports and editorials forwarded throughout the country, thanks to William Randolph Hearst, had worked wonders but... Wilson couldn't help but feel not just that he had been overshadowed by his old rival, but that he was also incredibly dependent upon him. Wilson was also pained by the fact that this version of the League Covenant wasn't even what he had originally wanted. After some long conversations with Jan Smuts, the original author of Wilson's Ideal League, the President became more favourable towards this new version, largely because he was convinced that it would pass much easier than League version 1.0. Still though, it was difficult to separate his resentment towards Roosevelt for all the mud which had been flung at him from this new version of Roosevelt who advocated compromise and seemed determined to acquire this league, come what may. Perhaps, Wilson began to suspect, Roosevelt was eyeing up another term in the White House and planned to use the success of this campaign as the basis for his great return to politics. Either way, whatever his motives... House was able to tell from his friend's face alone that, while the trip had been fruitful, Wilson was eager to get some space from Roosevelt. The boat trip over had been difficult enough, even being on the same vessel was a challenge for him, and the feeling was still mutual for Roosevelt too, in spite of the niceties. He had embraced this new challenge, but Roosevelt had confessed several times to Bruce Pogue and Oliver Flanagan, his closest confidants by a country mile, that his feelings towards Wilson had not fundamentally changed. He also had vowed to these two men, if his health could stand it, that he would run again in 1921, against Wilson if that proved necessary. Walter Cameron, always on hand for rational advice, had proved invaluable as a go-between for the two presidents, and this meant that the league stayed front and centre while their rivalry and mutual animosity towards one another mostly existed in the background. On the occasions where they did have to talk face-to-face, Stiff drinks were always on hand, but the conversation was generally polite if predictably cold. Still, Walter Cameron mused, cold, polite and productive was better than warm, boisterous and wasteful. Now those in Europe would be able to see that the American delegation stood firmly behind the League and that the efforts at creating some kind of opposition to it in the United States were not likely to be successful. This made it more likely that Lloyd George, Vittorio Orlando and Georges Clemenceau in their turn would back Wilson, which was good, but during the last leg of the journey, Cameron received a devastating piece of news. The Tiger, the father of victory, the French Premier, Georges Clemenceau, had been struck down. The assassin's bullet had not done him in, that much was plain, but French outlets were reporting that he had recuperated, and as he was recuperating, Another assassin posing as a doctor had done him in. It was a brutal affair. Cameron was privy to the more truthful, less tidier version as a senior delegate, and he almost wished that he hadn't been. Clemenceau had gone down fighting. He was stabbed several times by an assassin who then jumped out of the fourth-story window at the Premier's house while trying to escape. The whole event created an absolutely terrible scene with a pin-cushioned premier in one room and blood all over the carpet, and outside a squashed old impression of what the assassin's body used to look like. The whole event was shocking to the French people. It moved them into a mood of profound mourning and sadness when it happened on the 4th of March, with their father of victory killed so brutally, who was truly safe anymore? House knew, as he met that morning with Wilson before travelling to Clemenceau's funeral, that much work still needed to be done, but for at least an hour, it was appropriate to reflect on the life of their good friend, George Clemenceau, who had been taken so abruptly and so heinously by a relentless assassin who had then escaped justice. House vowed that he would have destroyed the man personally, had the assassin not been reduced to a dead bag of bones by the fall. Of course, the death of the assassin left wide open the question of who was responsible for the French Premier's death, with suggestions as far-reaching as the Germans or the French president, Raymond Poincaré. That mystery could be solved in time, but still, another funeral? It seemed that all of Paris had gone mad while the president had been away, and several other delegates were declared to be missing too. No one had seen any sign of Alexander Kerensky since the middle of February, and it was heavily suspected that a Bolshevik assassin had done him in as well. Kerensky, but also the lesser known Zionist Chaim Weitzmann, had apparently been disappeared as well. Could these events be connected? Could they be connected, in fact, to what had happened to Clemenceau? House wasn't sure they would ever find out the truth, but Paris was now crawling with police, not just from France, but all over Europe. The murder of Clemenceau on the 4th of March meant that the French were greatly shamed for their inability to protect such important statesmen. It also meant increasingly delegates travelled with an escort, or neglected to travel at all, leaving their rooms as little as possible. House had observed a mood of profound anxiety creep into the French capital, as the sheer weight of all that had to be done, coupled with the fear that now nobody was safe from an assassin's bullet or blade, appeared to cripple proceedings. So little had been done in the past week that House was almost ashamed of himself. He had talked extensively with Joseph Zahn, the American delegate who supposedly had a way in with the Germans, and this had fostered some meaningful dialogue, but by and large, few agreements had come to pass. The great man's funeral would be an occasion to mourn, but also take stock of the situation. It was destined to be a packed affair. The French had held off from hosting the funeral for 10 days until the Americans had returned, and as a result, anticipation had been building for these 10 days. Anticipation and apprehension that such a gathering would represent an ideal opportunity for an assassin to strike once again. House tried to persuade himself that no assassin would stoop so low as to attack him or his peers during a funeral. While he was not wholly convinced of the assassin's moral fibre or decency in this regard... He had no choice but to try his best to believe it and put on a brave face, lest he would live in fear for the entirety of the event or neglect to show up at the funeral at all. Clemenceau so deserved their bravery and solidarity. Even the Germans were showing up, quietly of course, lest they be pilloried for having played a major role in the crime and then showing up to gloat afterwards. The president got in the car where House was seated and sat beside House and in a weighted silence the two friends were brought to yet another funeral the fourth casualty that they knew of in only eight weeks of the conference. Bonifacio Fidel was on his best behaviour, seated beside Vittorio Orlando. Monsieur Fidel, Orlando whispered, there is the president arriving in the back. The wily Italian turned his head to see a tired, sad-faced president lumbering to position alongside the Texan colonel. So Wilson and House were still friends after all. Fidel studied Wilson's face for a few moments. The President looked as tired as he, Fidel, actually felt. The last few days had been as exhausting as they were unfulfilling. Fidel had attempted, unsuccessfully, to work out some sort of compromise or reproach him on between East and West. The British had proved particularly obstinate to what had been deemed MOIST, or the Multilateral Organization for International Satisfaction Treaty. Fidel chuckled to himself. The use of the acronym had been deliberate, and he had felt some glee watching the British and French pore over the document while whispering to themselves, moist. Moist? The proposal had been serious, even if the acronym had been a bit of a joke, but just like so many other initiatives in the last few weeks, it had not been taken seriously. It was, Bonifacio Fidel assured himself, a proposal which was just too advanced for its time. Even Orlando had been sceptical of whether the Allies would, or could, accept it. Fidel was certain that the only reason it had been rejected in the end was because it legitimised his other brainchild, the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement, by enshrining that agreement into the League of Nations. Fidel had enjoyed some success with the Poles, and Paderewski had been much more successful in the last fortnight at bridging the gap between Poland and the other delegations, turning on his usual charm of course, after that infamous incident in the Hotel Twomley, earlier in the conference. With Clemenceau's brutal murder, it seemed everything that had happened with the Poles and everyone else was mild by comparison. A determined rival, though he had been, Fidel was confident that Paris had suffered a terrible loss in the Tiger. Of greater concern was the question of precisely who would replace him. If the rumours were true, then the French president had already made his choice, and he had not, contrary to expectations and perhaps, arguably, since, chosen himself to lead the French delegation. A few feet away from the plush seats inhabited by the Italians, two Frenchmen were standing as they awaited the British. A month before, these two Frenchmen were barely of note in the Paris Peace Conference, but now it seemed that their names were on the lips of everyone. Albert Clavel, the French Minister for Public Works, firm advocate of the League and passionate disciple of Clemenceau, had been put forward as the Tiger's successor. It was, Poincaré had told him, difficult for him to admit such facts, but the record made it plain that Clavel had been a man Clemenceau truly respected, and thus he had genuinely confided in Albert Clavel. If France was to continue plodding on, she would have to honour Clemenceau's memory as best as she could, and by putting forward the closest thing Clemenceau had to a best friend in politics, Poincaré believed this could be done. Clavel had been floored by the suggestion. He was still getting over the profound heartbreak of losing his friend and mentor under such horrific circumstances. The official version portrayed Clemenceau's death in a much cleaner fashion so as to not spook out everyone that lived in Paris, but the rumour mill in Paris meant that the truth was known everywhere anyway, albeit, of course, in different forms. Poincaré had only summoned Clavel the previous day, on the 13th of March, and suggested that alongside René Massigli, a rising star in the French Foreign Office, Clavel would be best equipped to represent France on the Council of Ten. When Clavel had stuttered and stammered through suggestions that France could be better represented by bringing forward Stephen Pichon, the French Foreign Minister, or even President Poincaré himself, the French President merely held up a hand, and with surprising tenderness, expressed that while he and Clemenceau had never seen eye to eye, France had lost its greatest man, and this great man would want his great friend, Albert Clavel, to succeed him. When Clavel asked how Poincaré could be sure, the president produced a will, written, it was said, in the aftermath of Clemenceau's first brush with death on the 19th of February. Clavel felt his self-control escape him, and he wept, angry, bitter tears at the loss of his friend, But with a hand on his shoulder, Poincaré steadied him, suggesting in the process that the best policy would be to keep as many French statesmen in their old positions as possible where they could best support Clavel and Massigli in turn. One of Clavel's final acts as Minister for Public Works was to commission a statue of Clemenceau. It was to be placed in the park where Clemenceau had done so many of his afternoon strolls. Already, Clavel had been told, his department had been inundated with offers of donations for that end. Technically, of course, it was not his department any more. As of the fourteenth of march, Albert Clavel was the new premier of France, but in this building few knew it yet. By his side as before was Rene Massigli, that wily diplomat, German expert, and Anglo American sceptic would be an invaluable friend. Missiegli, for his part, had effectively ordered Clavel to lean on him whenever he felt necessary, at whatever time of day, for whatever purpose. Together, Missiegli had said they would pull France back out of her slump and push her into a new united front of greatness. The next day, on the fifteenth of March, Clavel would announce to the United States President, to David Lloyd George, and to all of Europe, that he had been selected to represent France and fill George Clemenceau's shoes. Clavel only hoped that he would be equal to the challenge. Seated a few rows behind the Italians were the British delegates. There he is, Fitzy, whispered Alistair Tancred, gesturing subtly towards the more infamous of the Belgian delegates. When did Dinglebrush get back, and is he seriously wearing a cape? Generous Dinglebrush had been back home in Belgium, liaising with the two main political parties in the country and informing the king of what had taken place in the previous weeks. It was, King Albert insisted, the best way to keep Dinglebrush out of everyone's hair, but he couldn't stop the bumbling Belgian from returning to Paris once these duties had been fulfilled. Rumour had it that the Belgian king had become somewhat fond of Dinglebrush and viewed him as somewhere between a naive fool and a pitiable nephew. Either way, Polly Mons would be left to babysit the Belgian, and sure enough, a strained Belgian foreign minister trailed behind Dinglebrush, a permanent look of impatience etched upon his face. The two Belgians approached Sir Alistair Tancred and Arthur Fitzwilliam. Good day, gentlemen, Dinglebrush boomed, while making a bow and sweeping his cape firmly to the left. It seemed he had been practising his introductions. Are these seats taken? Dinglebrush asked, gesturing indulgently to the two vacant seats beside Tancred. Monsieur Dinglebrush, Fitzwilliam exclaimed. What a pleasure. Please sit beside my good friend and confidant Sir Alistair Tankred. Tancred glared openly at Fitzwilliam, but Dinglebrush seemed not to notice. Ah, wonderful, Dinglebrush said. A knighted public servant, pray tell, Sir Alistair, for what noble act were you honoured by His Majesty King George V? Tancred hesitated, before exclaiming in the most deadpan, perfect French, I believe it was for enduring the constant trials of diplomatic service. Ah, yes, of course, Dinglebrush replied. While Monsieur Imons has gone through his fair share of trials while representing our great nation, Monsieur Imons do tell these fine gentlemen that tell you were called to me. You know the one about that incident with the mouse and the Swede. Paul Imons had by now caught up with his charge, and it was plain from his expression precisely how hard-worked he had been while chaperoning this figure around town. Monsieur Dinglebrush, Imons began. I am quite sure that these gentlemen are too busy to hear such a story. And besides, we are here as mourners, not as celebrants or revelers. Of course, of course, Monsieur Mons, your tact is appreciated as always. Very well, we'll continue this conversation after the ceremony. As he sat down, Dinglebrush broke wind once more, an unfortunate affliction which he had become used to, but which Fitzwilliam always found tremendous. You'll pay for this, Fitzy. Tancred whispered to his friend. The four men then went quiet as the long awaited ceremony began. The next morning on the 15th of March, the Hotel Zachary's famed breakfast buffet was underway. This was always a great opportunity to catch up with gossip or catch a potential ally before the day's itinerary truly started. In the last few days, the stop-start nature of the Council of Ten and the arrival of accredited Germans on that body meant that a great deal had changed. But it also meant that there were more opportunities for lobbying and requesting favours than ever before. The Germans and Austrians always sat at the same table and always ingested the same things. Horton von Hotsendorf virtually attacked the sausages and toast, Chancellor Karl Renner had several slices of ham and cheese with a couple of milky teas, and Paul von Leto Vorbeck, just sipped black coffee and stared out into the rest of the room, looking for opportunities of his own. More often than not, the three delegates were swamped by representatives from another country, looking for a favour or two when the Council of Ten assembled in a few hours. Today, at their table for six, they were joined by two men, Pavel Lobova, the now infamous Pole, and a new Russian face, Dmitry Robotnik. Lobova, it was plain, had something incredible that he wanted to reveal. Absolutely impossible. You are a madman and you are lucky I do not hand you over to the authorities at once. Paul von Letovorbeck spat in Pavel Lobova's direction. With respect, Herr von Letovorbeck, negotiating with Bolsheviks is not illegal. With respect to you, Mr. Lobova, there is no man on earth who can claim to trust the Bolsheviks. Not even a Bolshevik would trust a Bolshevik. And now, after all our days of intensive work, you believe an alliance with these people is in Poland's interests? What would Paderewski say about such approaches? Pavel Lebova replied, Paderewski continues to lobby for our cause amongst the British and French. I believe that it is therefore my duty to consider the East. Then the Austrian Chancellor interjected, saying, Monsieur Lebova, we do not know each other very well, but I know the Bolsheviks. I know they schemed to spread Bolshevism throughout the world, and I know they had a significant part to play in the disappearance of our friend Kerensky. The mention of another Russian put Dmitry Robotnik on edge and he interjected himself. His voice was gruff and deep, befitting a man who was about six foot five in height, capped off by long hair and a large beard. His stocky frame seemed to spill over the table and Renner believed that if he had wanted to, he certainly could have defeated the Bolsheviks champion, if the Bolsheviks had presented a champion that is. Robotnik cleared his throat before speaking. Gentlemen, we are gathered here to reach some solution for our three great nations. It is clear and painfully problematic that the Bolshevik regime will not be expelled without considerable effort. I do not wish to set any precedents of negotiations with the Bolsheviks, but perhaps by playing their own dishonest game against them, a point which Mr. Lobovo was just about to get to before he was so rudely interrupted, we could be in a better position to destroy them in time aha! Horton von Hötzendorf interjected, so it is not a formal, genuine alliance that Mr. Lebova is proposing. then it is merely a decoy. Pavel Lebova nodded, and Robotnik continued, Monsieur Lebova and I believe that by luring the Bolsheviks in it will be easier to avenge ourselves upon them. Consider the facts, gentlemen, not the British, French, Italians, or Americans wished to genuinely deal with this potent threat and yet it exists on our doorstep and it will affect us the most. I see, von Leto Vorbeck said, now notably calmer. What should we tell the Western allies then? They are already suspicious of what Germans, Russians, Austrians and Poles might do together. At this, Pavel Lubova again spoke up. I believe it is in our interests to maintain that the Polish effort to conclude negotiations with the Bolsheviks ...represent genuine political manoeuvres. This may alienate Poland from its allies... ...but the last few weeks have been trying indeed, gentlemen... ...and while I regret painfully the death of Clemenceau... ...I cannot deny that it presents new opportunities. Poland can best exploit these by appearing to have as many friends as possible. By forging some form of alliance... ...the Bolshevik threat will be momentarily dealt with... ...and Poland will be free to prepare for... ...an inevitable war with that regime in five to ten years' time. When that moment comes... We hope to have Republican Germany by our side. Von lidl took a long sip of his coffee before replying, If Poland manages to secure an alliance with the Bolsheviks, Germany will put on an act of outrage alongside the rest of world opinion. Old alliances between Poland and the anti-Bolshevik forces will have to be repudiated and Poland's image will certainly suffer. However, once we decide to swing the axe on Bolshevism's neck... Our old agreements will emerge from their cold storage. Then, when the time comes, Germany will assist Poland in destroying the Bolshevik menace. Lebova prepared to say his thanks, but von lettow continued, I must add, Mr. Lebova, that this is a very peculiar method of dealing with one's enemies, and Poland will come under heavy criticism for doing so. During this process, to maintain this charade and make Poland's artificial abandonment of the Allies appear more legitimate, Germany will have to add its voice in condemnation. Lobova simply nodded his assent. Herr von leto I appreciate this gesture, and I understand the importance of keeping up appearances. Poland will also work to secure favourable access for Germany into the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement, and alongside the Italians, Poland will maintain these favourable rates for several years, with flexible terms which we can negotiate in time. In addition, Herr von leto I should remind you that Poland will have to make a public act of leaving the anti-Bolshevik coalition, but that this act is merely for show. Do not imagine that Poland has abandoned the anti-Bolshevik cause. We have merely, we have merely worked to support it through another medium, which we feel is better suited to the circumstances. Von Leto Vorbeck grunted in assent, and Dmitri Robotnik then added, The plan is dependent upon the maintenance of secrecy, gentlemen. Russia will never be free from the Bolshevik poison at this rate. Only by engaging in such underhanded trickery will the motherland be liberated. We should not, I must hasten to add, feel any guilt about dealing dishonestly with Lenin's regime. They have demonstrated in the past that they attach no value even to international law. It is time to fight fire with fire. This all sounds very interesting, Mr. Lobova. Horton von Holtzendorf interjected. But how will you manage to forge such a deal? At this, Pavel took a deep breath and replied, Well, gentlemen, currently a supposedly secret American mission sending William Bullitt to the Russian capital is underway. I will attach myself to this mission with all the necessary accreditation as a plenipotentiary power broker. I will reach an agreement with Lenin face-to-face if necessary, and I will be as generous as possible. When I return, it will be under a cloud of infamy, but Lenin must believe that Poland has no other choice, and that in her desperation, she has signed on the dotted line. Lenin must believe that Poland is Bolshevism's friend, and if he does, and if he is lured to his own destruction, then all manner of bad press, and all scandal among the other powers, will be worth it. This is a long-term plan, gentlemen, and Germany will play a starring role. By the time we are finished with Bolshevism, nobody will ask how we disposed of it. They will only thank us that it is gone. And in the meantime, Europe will tremble in fear of Poland, for it will appear as though she will go to any lengths to secure her borders. Von Leto Vorbeck was visibly impressed. This is quite the scheme, Herr Lebova. I only hope that it is successful. Germany is with you and will play its part to ensure that this scheme succeeds. As for Mr Robotnik, we will support him as much as we can in the Council of Ten. Karl Renner and Horten von Hotsendorf nodded in agreement and shook Pavel Lobova's hand in turn. Robotnik lit a cigarette and cleared his throat once more, before concluding, Gentlemen, once we leave this table, we will not speak of this arrangement again. The hulking Russian placed an entire sausage into his mouth with the greatest of ease, as Horten von Hotsendorf looked on stunned. before rising up from the table and walking to the bar which yeah, had literally just opened. Robotnik was at least a stronger, more determined personality than the indecisive, insecure Kerensky had been. From their conversation, Horton von Hotzendorf felt convinced of one thing at least. Russia had its formidable son at long last. Pavel Lebovo was confident that this act of duplicity would save Poland from being choked on all sides. The Allies had made it plain in previous days that they had no true plans for protecting Poland or for defeating Bolshevism. Here was a concrete plan, a long-form plan, with flexible ends. Lebova did not reveal to the Germans that he planned on presenting a Polish-German alliance in a similar vein to Lenin, as he had just presented the Russo-Polish alliance to von Leto Vorbeck. Certainly, Lobova planned to destroy Bolshevism, but if the Germans in the meantime should strike at his beloved homeland first, then Lebova knew all bets would be off, and all allies would be welcomed. He had avoided using the names of his fellow delegates, but Paderewski was almost completely in the dark, even if he had his suspicions about Lobova's intentions. Josef Pilsudski and Bognan Kutsal were at that point being wined and dined in Belgrade, as they attempted to make some Yugoslav friends, so it was all hands on deck for Poland's delegation, and Lobova wanted to guarantee his country's security by whatever means. He hoped that by appealing to both sides and creating suspicion among both camps, Poland would enjoy greater opportunities, with the end goal always being the destruction of Bolshevism and the securing of her borders. But he knew at the same time, Pavel knew, that he would have to be careful that his duplicitous efforts did not leak out, and that either side found out just how willing to turn on the other Poland was, if the time was right. First things first, though, it was time to prepare for a trip to St. Petersburg. Eleftherios Venizelos argued in vain. This stubborn Australian was not listening. Imagine, Monsieur Mackay, the terrible set of circumstances which left millions of Australians stranded on an island under the jurisdiction of another power. Just imagine the horror. Imagine it. David Mackay felt himself bowing to the Greek Premier's charm on several occasions in the past, but on the red line issue of Cyprus, he knew that he was forbidden to budge. He sensed that Venizelos surely knew it as well. An Australian representative was hardly the best place to canvass for support when attempting to revive the Cyprus issue, so what was this Greek premier up to? It was late in the evening on the 16th of March, and rain was pattering against the window of their meeting room, situated on the third floor of the Hotel Zachary. On the table in front of them was sprawled a map of the Mediterranean, with Cyprus circled, portions of Turkey coloured in red, and the Middle East also highlighted. McKay felt somewhat dwarfed by Venizelos' personality and by the other figures in the room. They all seemed equally random. Baron Makino Nabuwaki surely cared very little for what happened to Cyprus, neither could the South African delegate Louis Botha or the Slovenian cigarette machine Karhu Rosnak. So what exactly was Venizelos playing at? Mackay had been the last person Venizelos appealed to during the meeting, and that Mackay's predictable refusal to countenance a Greek invasion or annexation of the British-controlled island of Cyprus, the Greek premier seemed to need a moment to compose himself. Very well, Venizelos sighed. It seems as though it is not in the powers of Greece to acquire what is rightfully hers by virtue of justice, nationality and tradition. To make up for such an injustice, I urge you all present, sirs, to consider the case of Greece, Not in isolation, but as an example of the self-determination mission. The sons and daughters of this ancient Hellenic country wish to spread their legs and achieve their dreams. We will postpone our dream of Cyprus, for as long as it takes, based on the opposition presented here. Greece appreciates that the issue is a thorny one. However, it is my hope that no man of valour could possibly refuse my next request. Contentious though Cyprus is, with the British interest present, The only interests inherent in Western Anatolia are those defunct interests of the Ottoman Empire, which this terrible conflict has seen fit to tear asunder. Perhaps in this one could venture to proclaim that the fates of war were just in this judgement, as the Turk has long been the menace of peace and of the independent small nations which she has crushed in the name of her ever-expanding imperium. Today we have the opportunity to appease history and to avenge this crime by fulfilling the dream of a greater Greece and I believe he will not disappoint us 10 million Hellenics who were dotted across the ancient seas. It was quite the speech, and McKay found himself nodding in assent. What did the views of those barbaric Turks matter anyway? They had slaughtered so many of Mackay's friends on the beaches of Gallipoli, so damn them and damn them all. Although it was a little bit too perfect, McKay admitted, that Venizelos gave up on Cyprus only to come down hard on western Anatolia, but there was... At the same time, undoubtedly a case to be made for reuniting those Greeks with the mainland and fulfilling the just cause of a great Hellenic kingdom. McKay was certain that David Lloyd George approved of this idea of a greater Greece, since he had always gotten on well with the Greek premier, but he was also certain that rumours were abundant regarding Venizelos's plans. If these powers present were not going to show sufficient support, McKay wondered if Venizelos would use the rumoured military forces at his disposal to launch that other rumoured military expedition to Turkey, either way. The city of Smyrna, at that point, was reportedly decked out with Greek flags, and its Turkish population had largely fled, so the opportunity had never been greater. With the blessing of Japan, Australia, Slovenia and South Africa, Venizelos would enjoy considerable legitimacy in whatever action he decided to take. After some inquiring, Baron Makino Naboaki confirmed his assent along with his dislike of the followers of Muhammad, who he blamed for a recent spate of attacks upon Japanese colonists in the Shandong Peninsula. Mackay was wary of accepting this claim, especially since Nabuwaki had been increasingly fixated on that strip of Chinese land in the last few weeks. Mackay suspected that Japan was going to request an annexation of the Shandong Peninsula, and he found himself instinctively opposed to any expansion of Japanese power in Asia. This would only jeopardise Australian interests. He would, of course, toe the British Empire line, but the calm and sophisticated exterior exuded by Nabuwaki, which had once so impressed David McKay, now made him feel increasingly uneasy. The Japanese foreign minister was unquestionably up to something. Karhu Rosnack was all business. He wanted guarantees that Serbia would be threatened by Greece if she continued to flout international law and occupy Slovenia under the Yugoslav banner. Rosnack began by demanding that Venizelos denounce Serbia outright for its behaviour. But after a little while listening to Venizelos's velvety turn of phrase, Rosnack toned down his demands somewhat. Rosnak would, he said, be content with a promise to aid Slovenia in the future with a delivery of arms. McKay was impressed at Venizelos's work. Evidently, he had not gathered these apparently random figures here without reason. They were all connected by what they could bring to the table. Rosnak would place pressure upon Serbia. Nabuwaki would place pressure upon the British and Australians in equal measure. Australia would pressure London to agree. And South Africa, where did Louis Botha fit into this equation? It wasn't long before David McKay had his answer. Reportedly, Louis Botha had been courting a Greek lady in Paris for some time. For the sake of his support to take lands unimportant to South Africa, Botha would be given a first-class introduction to this Greek socialite by Mr. Venizelos himself over a luxurious dinner. McKay only learned of this trade after the meeting had ended. It seemed interesting to him that not all delegates thought solely of their duties, others had pleasure leisure and personal pursuits in mind. That night, when McKay was close to drifting off to sleep, he heard loud, laboured noises from next door. Next door to his room was Louis Botha's suite, and his first instinct was to check if the South African was alright, but then he remembered the earlier trade. It seemed that Venizelos' intervention in Louis Botha's love life had done the trick. The sun shone through the luxurious window fitting and upon the black widow just as she rose to speak. David Lloyd George had to admit that he was impressed by Lady Nora Chalk's presence. The sophisticated surroundings of Woodrow Wilson's apartment only added to this presence. She was the widowed Hungarian countess, the final witness to President Mihai Carley, and the advocate for maintaining an independent, feverishly non-Bolshevik Hungary. Thanks to her efforts, armed shipments to the post-war Hungarian government had been secured. Her energy and tenacity were remarkable, and she seemed the only figure in that estranged country who was capable of getting things done. "'My country,' Lady Nora exclaimed, "'has been unduly punished by friend and foe alike. "'It is often said that Bolshevism threatens Germany, but I must urge the gentlemen present to consider "'that Hungary is also threatened by an undercurrent of this virus,' and that it grows in potency with each poor policy decision. Madame Choc, the new French delegate Albert Clavel began, "'Please explain to us how we can best serve your country. We wish only to save your people from suffering, but there are great and grave dangers to overcome first. Lloyd George admitted to himself that he had not been greatly impressed so far by Clavel's performance, Only to then stop him making such a judgement, and consider the fact that this relatively obscure minister had been plucked from the Public Works Department only yesterday, and had worked incredibly hard ever since. Clavel was polite, firm, intelligent, and calm. It was no wonder Clemenceau had relied so heavily upon him. Thank you, monsieur, Lady Chalk said, and may I emphasise once again how deeply saddened my countrymen were to hear of the great Clemenceau's passing, I do feel... He didn't pass away. He was murdered in his own home, perhaps by your countrymen. Came the sudden interruption. It had originated from Woodrow Wilson's chair. Had it really? Had the President been so callous and abrupt? Was he channelling Clemenceau's ghost all of a sudden? A sense of profound awkwardness filled the room. Mr. President, Lady Nora began evidently unshaken by the interruption and with a smile still on her face. Hungarians are not Bolsheviks, terrorists or your enemy. We are a people who have been led astray by a cruel strand of imperialism and we wish now to make good our re-entry into the concert of Europe by doing all it takes to restore peace and prosperity for us and our neighbours. At this, Woodrow Wilson whispered to his interpreter, who then expressed the President's apologies for speaking out of Turin so abruptly and sharply. Goodness, Lloyd George thought, this lady can even make the American president apologise, and to a woman no less. What else could she do? By the end of her representation, Lloyd George found that he had granted his assent to shipping arms to Budapest, and to protecting, as much as was possible, the regime that was in place there. There was notable conflict over the issue of Transylvania. Wilson insisted that American relations with Romania forbade her from handing the lands over to Hungary in their entirety. Lady Nora, ever the pragmatist, expressed in perfect French that it would be preferable to wait a few more weeks before making a final ruling on the Transylvanian issue. Wilson indicated that he would do his best to calm Romanian opinion. Lloyd George was amazed. The list of guest deputations to the Council of Four that day was not long so much as it was random. Next up was Prince Charoon of Siam, who talked about his country's relationship with Japan, his hopes for gaining greater independence for his countrymen, and his overall impressions of Asia. Lloyd George noted Wilson nodding off a few times, and Vittorio Orlando seemed that he couldn't care less, but as Asia was a contested sphere for Britain and France, Lloyd George noted Clavel was dutifully seated, Bolt upright, hanging on every word that Charoun said. In the coming weeks, Prince Charoon vowed, Asia would loom increasingly into focus for the Allied leaders, and they would have to make a choice on its future. Charoon exclaimed that he hoped those present would choose to honour its people by honouring in turn the principles of the 14 points. Charoon was followed by the delegate from Arabia, Prince Navar Sharif, who offered again to grant the British and French extensive trading rights and open markets in Arabia if his family could be favourably installed there. Lloyd George found his reserves of patience slipping. Arthur McAulville, the delegate for Newfoundland and the Czech foreign minister, Edward Benish, would have to just wait until the following day. It was just as he was considering his schedule for the next week that an urgent knock on the door interrupted his thoughts. A policeman burst through the door, with a pained expression plastered across his face. Lloyd George had seen such an expression before. He was certain that this policeman had just been in close contact with a dead body. And he was correct. Gentlemen, sirs, the policeman exclaimed, I must inform you that we have pulled a body out of the River Seine, several metres away from the Hotel Zachary. We believe it is the body of Alexander Kerensky, the former Premier of Russia. A stunned silence came over the room, as Vittorio Orlando, Woodrow Wilson, Albert Clavel and then Lloyd George rose from their seats. "'Heavens!' exclaimed the President. "'How many more men must die as we make peace?' Lloyd George wasn't sure of the answer, but he was certain that a new Parisian mystery had just begun. And on that cliffhanger history, friends and delegates, we end the episode. We've seen a lot take place here. Woodrow Wilson returned, George Clemenceau was honoured, Pavel makes some sneaky diplomatic dealings, we meet a new Russian delegate, we see what Venizelos has planned for Greece, and now to top it all off, a murder mystery involving the late Kerensky confronts us all. Before we end the episode, I have to introduce to you what you'll be voting for for the next week. While we haven't covered this in our main Versailles anniversary project yet, because we're saving all the Russian events for later on in May, I believe, around this point in March 1919 in real life, Admiral Alexander Kolchak, the most dangerous and powerful of the white Russian foes, which the Bolsheviks faced, he was based in Siberia, he launched an offensive against the Reds. I believe it was on about the 14th of March. In the face of this renewed assault on Bolshevism, then, my question is this. How do we respond to this assault and potential opportunity for ridding the world of Bolshevism? Do you signal your moral approval, condemn the offensive, offer financial support, offer both financial and military support, Or permit history? Of course, depending on what you decide to do, there will be consequences. Will you be able to destroy the Bolsheviks with this act? Or will military intervention lead to further indebtedness and a collapse in morale in the Allied nations? Is the risk worth the reward? Or do you want to leave Russia to its own devices? It's up to you either way, and we'll pick up the story next time round. A huge thanks to all those that took part in the delegation game and worked to keep it alive for the last two weeks. remember, if you didn't feature too heavily in this episode, there's always next time. But you can do some practical things yourself as well, like setting up some proposals for voting on in the various chat groups, contacting me directly with a scheme, or simply by making a mess in a range of other ways. The more active you are, in short, the more you'll feature here. And if you're listening to this right now, and you think you'd like to play a role in this alternative universe, which housed the Paris Peace Conference... Then by all means, head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and sign yourself up for $6 a month. Recent sign-ups demonstrate that it doesn't matter how late you join, you're still going to have a good time and feature in the story, so don't imagine that you just missed the bus. You can play any time. So with that being said, thanks for listening, playing and supporting us, dear delegates. This has been episode 7 of The Delegation Game. I have been your chairman, and I'll be seeing you all next week.